1: This is Mark Painter, your fellow fan of the history of Byzantium and host of the History of the Twentieth Century podcast. You know, you might think that Robin and I are working the opposite ends of history, but you know what? I just did an episode that was a survey of the Balkans, and it included references to Justinian and Procopius and the Bulgars. And I distinctly remember Robin telling a story of Aegean islanders who self identified as Romans when Greek soldiers landed on their island during the First Balkan War in 1912. The acts and decisions of people long ago, for better or for worse, reverberate down through the centuries, and the acts and decisions of people of more recent times can and should be judged through the lens of history. Have they learned the lessons of those who came before, or have they condemned themselves and everyone else to repeat them? In other words, history is a seamless web, and while I can't promise you a host with a mellifluous English accent that makes Americans like me swoon, I can promise you a thoughtful look at how the centuries past influenced the 20th century and how the events of the 20th century shaped the world we know today at historyofthe20thcentury.com.
0: Hello everyone and welcome to The History of Byzantium. Episode 110: The Four Wives of Leo VI. Last time, we got to know Leo VI, known then and now as The Wise. The learned emperor never went on campaign, instead spending his time reading and writing in the palace. Aside from some nasty defeats to the Bulgars, the first fourteen years of his reign were largely successful. But one big problem remained. He had no heir. His first wife, the saintly Theophano, died in 897, leaving Leo free to marry his mistress, Zoe Zautzina. She, however, died unexpectedly of an illness two years later. In Western Europe, for various reasons, the papacy had taken a pragmatic stance about a man having multiple wives. Marriage was, of course, sacred, but life was short. If your spouse passed away, God would forgive you for finding a new one. In the East, though, a different tradition emerged. Following the line of clergy like the great Basil of Caesarea, the Byzantines considered third marriages a form of fornication, requiring penance from the sinner. And a fourth marriage was out of the question. That was practically polygamy. These rules were confirmed in the new law books bearing Leo's name. In a world where God's favour was divined through secular events... Some suspected that if the Vasilevs had not fathered a son after two marriages, then maybe he wasn't supposed to. Leo did have a brother who might produce imperial heirs, not Stephen the eunuch patriarch, of course, who died in 893, but his younger brother, Alexander, was very much alive. Alexander was undoubtedly Basil's son, as he was born well after Michael III had been murdered. He was nominally co-emperor, but Leo kept him well away from power, and he indulged in a partying lifestyle. Alexander was married, but had also failed to produce any sons. Despite Zoe's sad death, Leo was determined to leave the empire to his own child, no matter what the cost. As he searched for a new wife, he decided to act against his brother. He forced him to separate from his wife so that no legitimate children might come from that quarter. As you can imagine, relations between the two brothers were sour. With Stephen dead, Stylianos Zautsis had appointed a friend of his, Antony, to be the new patriarch. Antony was willing to bend church rules and grant dispensation for Leo to marry for a third time. This was not unprecedented. Constantine V also had three wives. And doubtless swallowing their objections, the empire's clergy largely accepted the new union. The new Augusta was a celebrated beauty called Eudocia Viani. Soon after the wedding, she was pregnant, and nine months later, she gave birth to a baby boy named Basil. But sadly, Eudocia died in childbirth, and tiny Basil followed soon afterwards. It was very sad, but more than a few people felt that God had made his feelings clear about Leo, and this was his punishment. Euthymius, the emperor's spiritual advisor, told Leo to bury the pair quietly and avoid public spectacle. But Leo would have none of it, hosting a full imperial funeral for his family. We have no idea of the public reaction to these events. Presumably there was more sympathy than condemnation amongst the general populace, But those who knew the emperor well were afraid that he would push for a fourth wife, and they saw nothing but trouble with that. The patriarch Antony passed away in 901, and was replaced by an old friend of Leo's, Nicholas Mysticus. The two men had studied together under Photius, and Nicholas had been given favorable positions in the administration ever since, That last name, Mysticus, is actually a job title. The Mysticus was some kind of private secretary or judicial official. Despite their friendship, Nicholas warned Leo that a fourth marriage was impossible. The church wouldn't stand for it. So Leo compromised, for now. He took a mistress and decided to wait until she produced a healthy son before acting again. This woman, another well-known for her good looks, was Zoe Carvonopsina. She was from a wealthy Constantinopolitan family, and that last name is actually descriptive, meaning coal-black eyes. Not long afterwards, during a procession into one of the city's churches, an assassin leapt out of the pulpit and struck the emperor with a club, before being wrestled to the ground. Under torture, the man would not reveal any co-conspirators, so it's possible he was alone malcontent, but suspicion fell on Alexander, the emperor's brother. In terms of foreign policy, the second half of Leo's reign was marked by success on land and disaster at sea. In 901, the eastern themes went on deep raids around Melitene and Tarsus, dragging many prisoners home with them. And the following year, the Tachmata marched into Armenia to sack the city of Theodosiopolis. Frustrated on land, the Arabs of Tarsus decided to invest in their fleet. With the Cretan Arabs still on the loose, and Syrian and Egyptian ships available as well, Leo's reign saw an intensification of attacks on the empire from the ocean. The Greek port of Demetrius was sacked in 901, the island of Lemnos ravaged a year later, and around this time the Sicilian Arabs sacked the Italian town of Regium. In 904, though, came the most shocking attack of all. The caliph had appointed a former Roman soldier as admiral of the fleet. He is known to us as Leo of Tripoli, after the city in Lebanon where he'd converted to Islam. Leo knew the empire and its waters, and he managed to persuade his superiors to put together a combined fleet of ships from Egypt, Syria and Cilicia. It's not clear whether Leo had a specific target in mind or was waiting to see which way the winds would blow. But he sailed straight through the Aegean and into the Hellespont. The alarmed Roman authorities gathered the imperial fleet under their commander Himerios and prepared to defend Constantinople. But Leo stopped short of the Sea of Marmara and instead sacked the customs port of Abydos, Abydos was where a lot of shipping put in to sell their goods and pay their duties. Leo knew this and collected a handsome booty from the surprised town. He then turned his fleet around and sailed west towards Thessalonica, the empire's second-largest city. Disastrously, an earthquake had damaged the city's sea walls and they had not yet been repaired. As the citizenry scrambled, Leo's fleet bore down on them and set up a siege. Three days of desperate fighting followed before the Arabs broke through. Thessalonica had survived for centuries as the only place in the Balkans not to fall to the onslaught of Slavs, Bulgars and Avars. But now its walls were breached and Leo's men sacked the city. Not only did they take thousands of prisoners and lots of movable wealth, but they also freed Muslim captives and took about 50 ships from the harbour. Himerios and the imperial fleet shadowed them but did not attack, presumably because the Arabs matched or outnumbered them. It would have been irresponsible to intervene when defeat would have left Constantinople undefended. The poor Thessalonicans then received no relief, and the emperor's prestige took a battering as the Arabs sailed home via Crete, selling slaves off as they went. In revenge, the general Andronicus Ducas led a raid into Cilicia, collecting as many prisoners as he could in the hope that he would then exchange them for the Thessalonicans. But this did little to offset the humiliation especially as Simeon, Khan of Bulgaria, always alert to Byzantine weakness, marched into Thrace as soon as he'd heard the news. Simeon sent word that in exchange for not taking the city, he would like an improved peace treaty. And the emperor was in no position to argue. Simeon received recognition for Bulgar territorial gains in the Western Balkans. I'll elaborate on this at the end of the century, but it means Bulgar territory had massively expanded and now bordered Greece and Thessalonica. The two Christian kingdoms were alarmingly close, with the Slav tribes that had provided a buffer being absorbed into Bulgaria. When the 10th century narrative resumes, Simeon is going to prove to be a highly dangerous and proactive neighbour. The sack of Thessalonica was a shock to everyone, but it wasn't a major reverse for the empire in the long term. This was a rare moment when the caliphate's naval forces were coordinated under a good commander. It will not be repeated. The caliphate will continue to crumble, and the Romans will increase their efforts to eliminate the Cretan Arabs. It was their safe harbor in the Aegean that allowed dangerous raids like this, To take place. Back at home, Zoe gave birth to a boy named Constantine. He arrived in the purple chamber of the palace and would prove to be healthy. This good news for Leo prompted yet another crisis within the church. Feelings were strong amongst a lot of clergymen that the emperor should not be permitted to marry for a fourth time enough was enough. This feeling was widespread enough that the general Andronicus Ducas began dreaming imperial dreams. The eastern commander felt that if Leo wasn't going to have a son, then he was replaceable. And if he was going to legitimize bastard child soon, it was time to strike now. Events moved quickly, though. Andronicus was at that moment on the Cilician border preparing to administer the exchange of prisoners with the Arabs. But when one of his men abandoned his post and fled west, the general realized that Leo would soon know of his plans. Andronicus felt that the eastern armies would not support him in a civil war, and so he crossed the lines and entered the caliphate, taking his loyal retainers with him. In the capital, the patriarch, Nicholas, was in a difficult position. He knew that many in the church would refuse to accept this fourth union. Leo was already being bashed for his rank hypocrisy. In a sermon he'd written years earlier, he lambasted those who, instead of bathing in the pure waters of matrimony, prefer to wallow in the mud of fornication. The patriarch tried to negotiate to find a way out of this quagmire. He agreed to baptize Constantine in early 906 on the understanding that Zoe would leave the palace and not return. This neat solution was underpinned by breathtaking misogyny. The senior clergy were quite willing to legitimize the child for the sake of the empire, but another marriage was too sinful to contemplate, and so Zoe should be set aside. The bishop of Caesarea, Arethas, actually wrote the following to Leo. "'Why can you not now dismiss, with thanks, this woman who has given you the child you desired?' As we dismiss a ship when her cargo is discharged, or throw away the husk which had brought the fruit to maturity. Of course, the church had rules for a reason. They believed that some acts were sinful in the eyes of God. But this seems like a pretty shameful compromise that allows the male emperor and his male son to be given a free pass, while the innocent mother is banished and not allowed to raise her own child. Fortunately for Zoe, Leo had no intention of letting her go. Once Constantine had been baptised, he married her anyway, a palace priest doing the honours well away from public eyes. The emperor knew that his son's succession would be disputed if his parents were not wed, and so he was willing to risk the condemnation of the church to ensure his son's legitimacy. Well, He got that condemnation all right. Nicholas and the bishops of the capital were outraged and threatened to excommunicate him. Several made it clear that he would not be allowed in their churches until he'd served his penance as prescribed by law. The situation was delicate. Nicholas knew that if he took on the emperor's power, he would probably lose. There was some public outrage, but not enough to force imperial hands. Yet, if Nicholas just gave in and granted the emperor another dispensation for this fourth marriage, he would lose all support within the church. Trapped between a rock and a hard place, Nicholas agreed to Leo's suggestion that the pope be called in to arbitrate. This was a clever move on the emperor's part, because as we established earlier, in the western church, fourth marriages were allowed. More than that, of course, the Pope was being asked to come in on the Emperor's side, which at this point he was almost certain to do, because he needed Byzantine naval assistance in fighting the Cilician Arabs. Leo had avoided going to church in public during this period of tension, but with the Synod due to be held in early 907, he decided he would be all right to go to the Christmas services in late nine o six. However, as he approached the Achille Sophia, Nicholas called his clergy together to bar the doors. They refused to let the imperial entourage through, and twelve days later, on the Feast of Epiphany, the same standoff took place. Leo was surprised by his old friend's resolve, and began to worry that the Synod would not go as smoothly as expected. He asked the patriarch to come to the palace for further discussions, but other bishops accompanied him and refused to make any deals. By the end of January, Leo's fears got the best of him, and he ordered Nicholas and every bishop in the capital seized and removed from the city. The Vasilefs announced that he'd found evidence that the Patriarch had encouraged Andronicus Ducas in his rebellion. He probably didn't, but was on good terms with the general, which gave it a hint of plausibility. This heavy-handed move was effective in the short term. When the Synod was held shortly afterwards, it found in favour of the Emperor's fourth marriage. However, it created yet another schism within the Church and Nicholas and his supporters will be back. Leo appointed his spiritual advisor Euthymius to be the new patriarch, but Euthymius was not the emperor's pet. He was a devout man, and though he accepted the synod's decision, he made it clear to Leo that this was not the end of the matter. He would crown his son, but he would never acknowledge Zoe as empress in church nor would he allow Leo to enter the sanctuary, as was an emperor's right. Instead, Leo would have to serve penance for the next eight years. From that day on, Leo would stand with the rest of the congregation as a penitent, a physical acknowledgement of church law in action. The Vasilefs also wrote into law that future fourth marriages were illegal in Byzantium. The emperor contented himself with this compromise. Up in the palace and out on the street, Zoe was the Augusta, and that was what mattered. Their son was accepted as the legitimate heir. He would be known to history as Constantine Porphyrogenitos, Porphyrogenitus, as you may have read it many times in English. Rather than Constantine Seventh, we remember him as Constantine, born in the purple, a cognomen that speaks to the lingering insecurity about the status of his birth. That same year, 907, a fleet of Rus' ships arrived, threatening to sack the suburbs of the capital, as they had done under Michael III. Leo got his agents in front of the armada quickly, though, and bribed them to leave, A treaty was organised between the two peoples a short while afterwards, and two of the most important concessions granted to the Norsemen were for their merchants to be allowed to trade at the capital and their warriors to serve on Byzantine campaigns. The lure of Roman gold was always tempting. The exchange of the Thessalonican prisoners had been delayed by Andronicus Ducas' defection, but in 908 it went ahead and Andronicus' son and other retainers were welcomed home to the empire. Andronicus himself had died in Baghdad. Himerios, the admiral of the fleet, was also active both to take revenge for Thessalonica and to stop the Arabs from ranging so far again. At some point, he sacked the Syrian port of Laodicea, but this did little to curb Saracen piracy. What would strike a major blow would be the reconquest of Crete. Both the sack of Thessalonica and his messy fourth marriage had damaged Leo's ability to claim he had God's support. Taking back the island would silence all doubts. As you know, we rarely get specific figures for Byzantine battles, but in this case we actually have the statistics of the Armada written down for us by Constantine Porphyroyenitos. Like his father, Constantine would do plenty of writing during his time on the throne, and he included the number of soldiers and sailors who took part in this expedition in a treatise he wrote on government. In order to reclaim Crete, the Byzantines employed 119 ships, 34,000 oarsmen. Then they transported a 1,000 men each from the Tachmata, the Thrakision, the theme of Sebastea, and from the empire's Armenian allies. They were joined by about 11,000 marines, whose quality as soldiers is difficult to determine, and 700 Rus mercenaries. Sadly, though we know exactly who took part, details of the actual campaign are sketchy. It seems like the armada was gone for eight months, probably they landed on Crete but were unable to besiege the Arab capital successfully, and while they were fighting on the island their ships were extremely vulnerable to being attacked. And this is what seems to have happened. Afraid of being trapped on the island, the men fled when ships from the Caliphate appeared. Led by Leo of Tripoli, the Byzantines were chased back into the Aegean and defeated near Chios. We have no figures for how many men made it home alive, but by the time Himerios got back to Constantinople, the emperor was dead. Leo had grown ill over the winter with what we suspect was dysentery. He made it to May of 912 before succumbing. He was only 45 years old, and had governed the empire well, but with little luck, for 26 years. Leo's reverses were largely temporary problems. The Bulgarians had outsmarted him, but he was far from alone on that score. The sack of Thessalonica was shocking, but merely a blip in the longer trend of Byzantine recovery. And though his fourth marriage would cause problems for his wife and son, Constantine would eventually rule alone. Before that, though, Leo's untimely death will lead to more chaos – He never had disinherited his brother Alexander, and despite their frosty relationship, he must have somewhat trusted him, because he left the empire and his seven-year-old son in Alexander's hands. But his party-hardy brother won't last long, and when we resume the narrative, there will be big problems for Zoe to deal with. More significantly, perhaps, Leo's reign signals the larger trends of the coming century. The revolt of Andronicus Ducas reveals a tension between the empire's elites. Leo was content to be a palace leader because the men of eastern Anatolia were handling the Arabs so well. But those hardened generals were starting to believe that they could run the empire better than the pampered princes of Constantinople. This is a development we will explore in more detail during our end-of-the-century episodes. We will, of course, be reviewing changes in the Byzantine government, populace, and military across the last hundred years, as well as visiting the empire's neighbours to assess their relative strengths. And, of course, answering your questions. You still have time to send them in, so please do. One of the reasons Leo's reign seems like a bit of a failure is that the defeats are all big, showy moments the losses to Simeon of Bulgaria, Thessalonica, the inability to take Crete. But in the East, significant gains were made. The patchwork of Armenian, Byzantine and Arab communities living along the mountainous frontier were slowly realizing that the Roman Empire was once again the biggest game in town. But because that area is so complicated to discuss, it will have to wait until its own dedicated episode during our end-of-the-century tour. Hopefully then, Leo's reputation can receive a little more gloss. And while you're waiting for those podcasts, why not check out Mark Painter's The History of the 20th Century, a podcast covering the best documented century in human history. And Mark's ambitious project is taking in the major events from across the globe and covering cultural figures too, recently touching on Albert Einstein's early work, Check it out in the usual places or go to historyofthe20thcentury.com. When you make decisions for
1: your company, you look for the no brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, stamps.com is the ultimate no brainer.